Hello and welcome to another episode of Building Success, a real estate podcast. My name is Nick and I will once again be your guide as we talk to some of the best and brightest in the worlds of real estate tech, operations, and financials from across the globe. This podcast would not be possible without listeners such as yourselves, so if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it, please consider liking and subscribing wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a review. We would love that as well. Also, if you're interested in one of our limited edition Building Success Real Estate Vibes t-shirt, you may have seen some of that on our LinkedIn channel or on the website. Uh, please leave us a review and send us a note letting us know and showing us, and we will get one of those right to your doorstep uh, before they sell out. Sizes are limited, but we'd love to shoot those out to some of our listeners. Today, I speak with Jor Poleg, uh, who recently released a book, Rethinking Real Estate, and we discuss the book, some of the, some of the great findings that he put in there, the evolution of real estate across retail, office, industrial, and some of the ways that real estate has changed since the you know 19th century, some of the ways that it's kind of moving and shifting back. Jorah brought a ton of great examples to the table. The book has, has even more. Uh, we dive into the retail side today, but the book also covers office and industrial and farmland even at one point. So highly recommended. I'll put some links in the show notes for ways that you can get your hands on a copy of the book. Uh, but until you do, Go ahead and take a listen to my interview with Dror Polig. So I am on the line today with Dror Polig, um, somebody I've actually interviewed before in the past. How, how are you doing, Dror? I'm good, Nick. Great and, being here again. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to catch back up with you um, since the last time we spoke, which was probably about a year ago at this point. Uh, you've mm -hmm. released a new book, and you sent me a copy, which I, which I really appreciate because it is a great read. It's called Rethinking Real Estate, uh, Roadmap to Technology's Impact on the World's Largest Asset Class. And I've got a lot of really good information out of this. And if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd love to dig into some of, the, some of the things that you discussed on it. Sounds good. Let's go. Perfect. So to kind of kick things off, um, you know, one thing that I, I really enjoy and I enjoyed with our conversation last time was was our conversation on retail. And, mm -hmm. you know, let me just ask it this way. Like, what, what do you see as the future of retail? So I think the, re the future of retail looks a lot like the past of retail, but just at a different scale. So if you look at the department stores in the 19th century, uh, which is when they started to really emerge, they were not focused only on selling things, but they were really cultural centers and experiential centers. So they were a place where you go to see how new things are being used, things that you've maybe never seen before. Uh, there are places you go to make it easy for you to choose which item to buy. Like even if you know what you want to buy, like instead of looking at a hundred different pieces as we do today online, uh, they selected the few that are really, really good and did a lot of the curation for you. Mm -hmm. There are social centers where you go, where you go to meet people like you, uh, and also cultural centers in the sense that, a bit like museums, there are things there to be seen that are not even for sale or not for sale yet for for a few years or even for a few decades, but that you can go and kind of experience and see what's new in the world, 
which means that you can be part of the conversation. So, yeah. you know, when you go back and talk to your friends, uh, there was that. And also they innovated about a, a lot of things that I think actually got lost in the 20th century once we started driving. Uh, but, you know, they had free delivery. They had all sorts of on-site kind of financing options and, and innovative things that made it easy for you to buy something, even if it wasn't immediately uh, affordable. They had free returns, which was very, which were very simple. Uh, and they were socially very progressive. So, I mean, they innovated uh, in order to make spaces more comfortable for people, unlike almost all other spaces at the time. So starting from making spaces that were safe for women to walk around in on their own, yeah. which is something that, I mean, sounds obvious today, but, you know, 150 years ago, even in New York and London, for a lady to just walk on the street on her own and to go into a building was considered, you know, <laughs> like a social adventure. Yeah. Uh, so they made it safe. Yeah. They created, you know, bathrooms for women, which were clean and safe, again, which is obvious today, but innovative back then. And in places like Japan, one of my favorite examples, a department store was the first place where people could come in and still keep their shoes on. So they didn't have to take to take off their shoes, you know. So it was, again, yeah. a, a place where you felt that you're on the cutting edge, where you go to see something new. Uh, and I think broadly, that is the future of retail. Um if we try to bring it a little more down to earth, it also means that uh, people who operate retail spaces need to tie in uh, logistics and delivery and all sorts of things that they need to be able to facilitate that for their tenants. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily to do all of it on their own, but to be part of an integrated process and not just give people an empty box and assume that they'll figure it out on their own. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how much of that was based on the experience and not on the product. And then the last couple of decades, it was all about the product and inventory and less yep. about the experience, except for maybe some of the higher-end retail stores. Mm -hmm. And it and it feels like they were trying to, to keep to what, again, as you said in the book, what was actually happening in the in the 19th century, which is yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, and to be fair, even in the 19th century, the things I described were not available to everyone. It was mm -hmm. a time, a bit like our own as well, where, you know, you had a, a a high class of people that were very wealthy, and then you have a lot of people that were just immigrating or moving to the city for the first time. And department stores were mostly for the, you know, the more affluent people. And yeah. today, obviously, the they're more available to, to many more people. Uh, but beyond the experience, I, I would say that there are some more functional and practical things that uh, that are important when we think about the future of retail. So if you look at e even further back in history and why, you know, why do shopping malls exist or why do even st street markets exist? Mm -hmm. uh, and one way to, to answer that question is the idea of transaction costs, yeah. which is basically the, the costs involved in two parties consummating a transaction. So in a you know a medieval world, let's say, uh, it's very expensive for me to find people who are selling what I need, or if I'm a seller, to find buyers and to inform all of them about my product. Mm -hmm. It's uh, very unsafe usually if I just come and you know do a pop-up shop in the middle of a, <laughs> of a little town somewhere. I'll probably get robbed. Uh, and then it's very it used to be very expensive to enforce. The kind of the after service, so, you know, even if I sold you something, maybe I cheated you, maybe you didn't transfer me the money. So markets 
physical markets emerged to alleviate a lot of these transaction costs, you know, to make it easy for people to find each other, so to, to market or to search, uh, to make it easy for people to transact, to make it easy for people to get reviews from other customers like we do today online. But in the market, you know, you can look at how other people haggle and then you get an idea of, you know, which product is popular, how much are people paying for it, who seems angry or not, and you can ask people. Uh, and there's many of those old markets were also under a mandate from from the king or a local ruler. So someone guaranteed the security of all the transactions yeah. in that market. Now, all of these transaction costs don't exist anymore. I mean, today the world is much simpler. You know, it's very easy to to search for things. We have law and order. Uh, we have, you know, payment systems of various kinds. But we do have new transaction costs that come with our own age of abundance. And, you know, one of them is the idea of curation. So, I mean, we have too many things. So, I mean, it's becoming expensive to just decide which one to get. So if someone can help narrow it down for me, that reduces uh, a cost. The other thing is if something even more practical, all the, all the issue of returns, you know, physical, it's very easy to buy stuff online, but then it's very expensive and cumbersome to return them, which is something that a lot of retailers and shoppers are struggling with. So again, all of these things are things that the landlord or the operator of the retail space can help address. And as you analyze it systematically, there's more and more of these transaction costs that uh, that are becoming more severe uh, with the way retail is currently transacted. And I think the more the landlord can help address them and simplify them, uh, the more successful they will be. Yeah. And when, when you were talking about the returns, it made me think of the, the fact that Amazon you know, just to simplify the return process, people didn't want to have to ship boxes back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've they've partnered with with the Kohl's department stores. Yeah, and they with Lowe's, I think, same. and with, yeah, they have, they have different places where you can just drop a box. And finding finding ways to be innovative in in that front. So, let me ask you this, Drawer: um, if you're if you're trying to build the shopping mall of tomorrow, mm-hmm. what what considerations would you have to go into the design of that building, given the change of of the way that people are utilizing the spaces there. And, and I think, and again, in your book, you've had a bunch of different examples of, of ways that are u- pe- people are utilizing space differently. Mm-hmm. What would you do in that, you know, 2020 new shopping mall? So the, the, the simple answer, it might, be, it might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but it's actually, I think, less about the physical space itself and more about what you constantly do to keep it dynamic and interesting okay so it's much more about the curation of the content and of the goods inside and less about you know how do i build the ideal building and i think part of what's uh kind of dramatic in the change that is currently happening in real estate is that you know the old shopping mall is dead the old office maybe is dead but the thing that replaces them is not a new stable thing that will just now go on for 50 years until something else replaces it the thing that replaces it is kind of a mixture of a few different things that address a few different consumer needs and it keeps changing all the time. So I think like flexibility is probably the most important thing to build into almost any real estate asset today. And that that broader thinking about how that integrates with other things that people are doing. So both how is it easy for people that bought stuff online to come and pick stuff up? How does it integrate with all sorts of new mobility systems? So not just thinking about cars uh, or trains, but, you know, also scooters and walking and uh, and other modes that are emerging, including, you know, flying delivery devices and 
at some point also flying things that actually drive people in them. And, uh, and in a way, a vessel for, you know, for culture or for physical social interactions between people. So, you know, in Hudson Yards in New York, there's a famous uh, structure. There's a famous structure actually called the vessel, but I'm actually talking about a different structure called the shed, okay. uh, which is kind of a multi-purpose open and closed space, which is used, you know, for theater productions, for sports productions, for exhibitions, for just gatherings of people. Uh, so the shed is basically a vessel uh, that the operators have to constantly think about how to to activate and create engagements uh, within. And I think a lot of the future of retail is about that. It is about the, the content inside the building and much less about the building itself. Yeah, and and not only just the content within the building, but then whether that content is meant to create an experience or if mm-hmm. it's meant to house inventory. You know, the days of, of how you organize the yeah. SKUs within your, your retail shop seems to be dramatically changing mm-hmm. too, right? Yeah, we're seeing now, you know, with Walmart are exper- experimenting with some new concept stores, which are basically designed for delivery. So, you know, half of the store or two thirds of the store are no longer designed for, you know, the same supermarket for everyone. And if some people walk in, then they just walk around and pick whatever they want. And then the delivery people just run around and pick stuff off the shelves. They're actually building these back of houses uh, with people or with even robots within them. They just have these shelves, but they're they're not supposed to, you know, consumers are not never going to visit them. They're just for pure, yeah. purely for delivery, uh, but they're not in a warehouse. They're in a store, you know, in an infill location in the middle of a city or, or the middle of a suburb. Uh, so somewhere where used to be a retail floor just becomes something between retail and logistics. Uh, so we're definitely going to see a lot of that. And then on the other extreme, I think we're going to see stores that are that don't look like stores at all. So uh, one general phenomenon I think that we're going to see more of is this kind of bifurcation of the retail market. There'll be less of an average store, but there'll be more either on one extreme, very functional, very value-oriented, very kind of speed-oriented things like what Walmart is being is building, and on the other extreme, things that are very exper- experiential, very abstract, much less clear about whether something is even being sold there, but that help create some kind of resonance and relationship with a brand uh, that is looking to build a longer-term relationship with a customer and, you know, looking at the lifetime value of the customer and not necessarily at the specific sale uh, itself. Yeah, and, and let's let's talk about these brands. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, again, in your book, you, you mentioned um, the evolution of the, the digitally native vertical brands. Mm-hmm. Can you Can you kind of speak about how they're how they're kind of introducing themselves into retail where historically they were kind of outside that vein. Yeah. So where, how do we describe this? So, you know, in the past, the the 20th century in particular was, was governed by production. So, you know, if you had the ability to produce something, it, you then figured out how to market it and found your customers in the 21st century. You know, I can today, if I have an idea for something, I can, find a factory in China on Alibaba.com and, you know, within three days they start manufacturing it. And with some retailers, you know, within a couple of weeks, I can already start selling it. And actually online, I can even start selling it before it is made because I make some renderings and then I start selling it. Uh, and as you know, there are people online, you know, in places like Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok that have a lot of followers. And these followers 
would buy product that these people market. And at some point, that distribution channel, the ability to reach people and to engage them became more important than the ability to produce things. So we started to see the emergence of these brands that are not manufacturers. They don't have strong physical presence or any physical presence in the real world. They just have a digital presence. So it could be, again, a single person who is an influencer, mm-hmm. uh, or it could be someone who deliberately wanted to build a brand. And they start marketing different goods and building those brands that basically sell only online. And then gradually, maybe as they evolve, they start opening physical stores. Uh, and when they open the physical stores, they don't necessarily design them for the same purpose that traditional retailers design them. So one, they are more like uh, guide shops, which is a concept that uh, Bonobos, a kind of male brand, uh, male clothing brand, a pioneer, the fellow named Andy Dunn. Uh, and a guide shop means, you know, I go to the store. I have one actually around the corner from my house. I go there. I look at what they have. They size me up and then I order online. I either do it in the store itself with their help or I do it at home and then they deliver deliver it to my home, you know, within a day or a couple of days. If I don't like it, I can just come back to the store and just drop it there. So I don't even have to pack it again or do anything else. So that means that, I mean, the store itself now has an infinite inventory. Uh, so it doesn't have to be very, very big. It also means that it doesn't need too many employees, which means that the one or two employees that it have can be much, much more qualified and better trained. So they're like actually experts at, you know, recommending clothes to someone who is busy and just walked in for 10 minutes and, you know, to creating that great experience and great service that uh, I guess a lot of retailers in in the US and elsewhere are not really uh, famous for anymore. Uh, and we're seeing now more and more of these digitally native uh, brands moving offline because it helps deal with returns, but more importantly, because it's actually becoming cheaper to acquire customers offline than it is online. So, you know, online today, if you advertise, online advertising has become very, very expensive because there's a lot of money going into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the meantime, retail space has become very cheap because it's empty. So it's actually at some point, there's a tipping point where it's actually cheaper for a digital company to go in and sign a lease and to acquire customers just by, you know, having a sign outside on the street and getting people that walk by uh, to come in. Foot uh, yeah, than it is to advertise online. Plus these two channels, you know, the digital and the physical are very synergetic. So they they contribute to one another. So the physical store helps recruit customers that then end up buying more online. And the online channel helps recruit customers that then end up going to the physical store and handle their returns there and complete transactions that are cheaper for the retailer to uh, to complete because the, the retailer doesn't have to send them a package with, a, you know, with another person and then pick up all the returns and deal with all of that. It's still, cheap, it's still really cheap to sell at a store if the customer is, is coming into the store. Um, so we're, we're seeing more and more of that. And it's what's really interesting to me is, especially with your Bonobos example, just how we've slowly seen these vertical brands start to go back to retail. And Mm -hmm. it was just I mean, it was just five, if not maybe 10 years ago when 
these clothing brands, like the novel business concept was yeah. all digital. We mm -hmm. make it convenient to ship it to you. You try it on. And if you don't like it, you return it real easily. Yeah. But even that for the consumer side of things, they don't want to have to, you know, they, they want to make sure that the sizing's right beforehand. For them to be yep. able to go into a Bonobos and get sized, they know mm -hmm. what they're getting. It's much less likely to be returned. And then if it is, to have that retail spot, especially, again, because some, some shopping malls have, have slowly died and there's opportunity to get cheaper leases in them. There's, yep. there's a lot of, you know, opportunity for them to kind of jump on that. Yeah, and, and this goes back to this notion of transaction costs, you know, when when e-commerce started or when when it started to mature, let's say, you know, 12, 15 years ago, it was much cheaper to send something by mail than it was to, you know, pay for rent in an actual store and, you mm -hmm. know, to employ people there. But as logistics space became so expensive and so scarce, and as deliveries became so expensive and so difficult because there's so much competition, the pendulum basically swung to the other side and it is actually cheaper to transact offline in a store uh, often uh, than it is to, you know, send a delivery person, even if that means that, you know, you're saving on not having a store, but actually it's much more expensive to have a storage space and delivery these days. And the pendulum will probably swing again over the next few years as delivery costs go down. I mean, they currently keep going up and up and up, but at some point, when more of this stuff could be handled by autonomous devices or by flying devices, suddenly we'll see a shift again to the other side where, you know, it doesn't make sense so much to open these stores anymore. And the stores will once again have to figure out what exactly they want to do yeah. and what is their purpose in the world. Very interesting. Yeah. And just as the drones come in and then, mm -hmm. you know, hearing about personal people driving for, for people like Amazon to deliver mm -hmm. packages quicker, like that can bring the cost yeah. down too. Like all these things start to move it. So then everybody has to be agile and, and adjust, which in the real estate industry has seemed historically very hard for people to do adjust mm -hmm. to, to new things that are happening. And one thing I'd like to talk about now, if you don't mind, um, another thing you mentioned in your book, if we look at it from the, the landlord's perspective, mm -hmm. um, you, you had mentioned, I think specifically Simon and Kimco, some some fairly large developers and, and owners yeah. of, of shopping centers that, you know, they're creating permanent spaces for mm -hmm. temporary brands, which yeah. I think historically the landlord's game has always been to lock people in long term, mm -hmm. know and and work towards having a space that's suitable for that, for that lessee so that they want to stay. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about what they're doing? Yeah, so both Simon Properties and Kimco, which is, I think, two of the largest shopping mall owners and operators in the U.S. and in the world, uh, they're starting to dedicate more and more dedicated spaces in their shopping malls to temporary tenants. So, I mean, spaces that are more for pop-up brands, for tenants that want to experiment with something, and then for both parties, so both the landlord and the tenant, to see if it's working out before they commit to anything longer. Uh, which, if you squint, starts to look very similar to a department store. So basically <laughs> meaning, okay, you're not going to build your own store and stay here for 15 years, but just each one of you will have a bit of a section mm -hmm. uh, with a wall, without a wall, with more fit-out, with less fit-out, but, but basically something that can pop up pretty quickly. And you're going to tap into all of our infrastructure. So now the floor will be ready. There's like three or four pre-made uh, designs and layouts that you can choose from. All the infrastructure, the point of sale, the, the internet, all of that is ready. In some cases, even the salespeople and the employees can be provided by 
essentially the operator of the shopping mall, so the landlord. Uh, so yeah, so very, very much like an old department store, but for a landlord, it means that you're suddenly starting to deal with all sorts of things that traditionally you would rather not deal with. So, you know, to be much more customer facing. Uh, and even that work of curating new tenants all the time is is new work and not something that landlords traditionally wanted to to spend too much time on, at least not on an ongoing basis. Uh, and we're seeing that even you know in New York, there's a Bleecker Street. It's a street in uh, in downtown Manhattan, in, around Soho, uh, West Village. Sorry, that uh, used to be a very popular shopping street and kind of faded somewhat. You know, there's a lot of vacancy. And Brookfield, which is another one of those largest landlords in the world, acquired a strip of stores, so like inline, like street shops, so mm-hmm. not like a shopping mall, and started uh, identifying online influencers and little brands off of Instagram. So small companies, you know, that have 30,000 followers or 100,000 followers. Uh, so not much bigger than <laughs> than I am if I saw if I would sell something online. Yeah. And told them, hey, why don't you come in and you know, we'll give you a space for a few months and let's see how it goes. You know, we'll kind of we'll back you for, for a few months. And if it's good, you can stay. If it's not good, you know, we'll bring someone else. Uh, so that's also a very interesting experiment. And and all of these things, by the way, including the digitally native uh brands, they're not necessarily very profitable yet. But they're also inevitable. So, I mean, there's just no other way to work anymore. You need that flexibility. You need to constantly uh, refresh whatever is in your retail store or uh, project in order to attract people. And I think that the industry still needs to figure out exactly how to pay for it. And obviously, the, the people that finance the building, so the lenders and the banks, also need to get more comfortable with it. Uh, but it's inevitable. I mean, this is just what the world is going to be like. So the, the rest of the industry will have to adjust and find these new ways to, uh, to price the, these new risks and to, uh, to finance these projects. And, and from a social aspect, social media mm-hmm. aspect even too, it's, you know, the, the concept of the pop-up is certainly mm-hmm. bringing more people to these malls more often that maybe, yeah. you know, historically they know the shops that are there, they know what to expect. Mm-hmm. If they now don't know what to expect, it becomes an experience that they want to go to. And then, you know, obviously some of these digital native ver- vertical brands, they're they're big on social media. They have mm-hmm. the influencer piece. But then these other non-retailer influencers in the social media world, yep. them coming to see these pop-ups and it becoming more of an event than just a shopping experience to yep. be there when it opens and to, to figure out what this new thing is that just opened there. There's a lot of tactile marketing that could be put yeah. around these things to draw hopefully from the landlord's perspective a lot more foot traffic yeah i mean and, and we're seeing these new giant malls pop up and you know with ski slopes inside and all sorts of ch- kids entertainment and mm-hmm. child care and sometimes health care and sometimes co-working spaces so we're seeing this kind of blurring of boundaries or convergence of uses uh where you know people don't necessarily go out of the house to buy something but they they'd still want to go out and see other people and experience things and you know get a little break from their kids uh so th- there will always be a need for that i think and i think even more so the more we are connected through technology the more we yearn for this interaction with other people and 
this interaction with with physical things and with with fresh air and light and movement and you know things that that we cannot get out of our uh, uh, devices uh, and and I think also socially humans are less less and less uh, adept at interacting with people in a completely unstructured way so we need to landlords or other companies to step in and create these opportunities for us to socialize in a way that is safe and clear and not awkward uh, because a lot of young people don't know how to do that anymore just you know if you just drop them in a room uh, they don't <laughs> they don't necessarily know how to interact too well anymore but if you create an opportunity for them to be in a room with people that they know have been curated and you know maybe have something in common with them and there's some kind of <laughs> enforcer or regulator that kind of set out some clear ground rules and they know why they're there it's easier for them to uh, to interact and to transact and that's a that's an interesting concept too because um, you know I live not too far outside of Akron Ohio and we have a mall mm-hmm. currently that's that's starting to it's I guess foreclosure proceedings at this point yeah. um, the past week and it's just it's lost a bunch of their retail shops the people that mm-hmm. came in and bought it they you know they didn't manage it well they didn't bring in new and innovative ideas and and that's happened across the country especially in, in some parts of the Midwest but mm-hmm. um, what's interesting is that in the 90s 80s and 90s you know going to the mall was a, a big social aspect yeah. for for teenagers and things and As some of these malls have shut down and as some of the stores become vacant, they and especially again using this Akron Ohio example, there was there mm-hmm. was a stabbing like it got it became a dangerous place to be yeah. so that all the other stores started to leave as well. And, yeah. you know, it's one less place for people to feel that they can socialize right. and be safe. And so. You know the options start to become limited and then you know it starts to become well maybe it's going out and getting drinks but now you're adding alcohol and that might not be a right. safe environment too mm-hmm. um, coffee shops were a big thing for a while but but even there you know people don't want to sit around there all day so creating space right. and I think the beyond. coffee shops themselves are still trying to grapple with their role in the world if whether they should let people stay a long time or not let yeah. them stay a long time I and mean, there was the famous Starbucks fiasco with like you Whether they should let people use the bathrooms or not use the bathroom or you know they should force them to buy something and how long after you buy you're still allowed to use the bathroom or not and, you know maybe you're a, a loyal customer but you just didn't buy something today but you just wanted to walk in and use the bathroom should we let you uh, so <laughs> yeah yeah and it's 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 interesting because like so many of these buildings it, it becomes the consideration then becomes how can we utilize the space for more than just its initial purpose yeah. right and we've talked I think we talked last time about the the restaurant that you know opens up for businesses in the in the morning hours and then has its its dining in the in the evening yeah so it's a co-working space during the day and it's a, a fancy restaurant after five or six pm yeah mm-hmm. yeah and that's, that's by the way we work ended up acquiring that company. really uh, spacious and they kind of phased it out and kind of brought it under their own brand yes oh int- very interesting can we it's can one we of the last things they work? bought <laughs> I'm not sure it was a good idea yeah <laughs> interesting that they noticed it as well yeah I'd, I'd love to uh, love to talk to you about we work um, get your take on it I know you you mentioned it quite a bit in your book mm-hmm. what, what do you think that they did right did wrong and and what's the future like for for not just them but maybe even just for that space yeah Okay, so I mean, in terms of what they did right, they looked at the the customer, the individual inside the office, and uh, they acknowledged that that individual exists. So you know it's people often say, "Oh, you know, flexible office has existed for you know thirty years. What's the big deal? But those old operators like you know i w g Regis, 
they're not really they weren't really solving the same problem they they were a business to business provider that you know went to companies and said okay if you need some presence in a new city we'll make it easy for you but what we work did is they turned real estate into a consumer experience they went to the individual and said hey we're gonna create a place that you know you would enjoy going into that maybe you'll be proud being part of uh, and that is aligned with your values with your aspirations uh, which is why it might look like ridiculous or stupid or annoying or silly to other people because that's how brands exactly are you know someone would pay 250 dollars for a pair of nikes and someone else would think that that's the stupidest thing they've ever heard but that's the beauty of it so we work really created a, a, con a consumer brand and a consumer offering uh, and and tackle this corporate real estate world from from the other side so from the employees going to their boss and telling him hey we want to be in that environment so not going to the boss and telling him, oh you need some flexible solution to save money we'll give you that and then the employees will have to swallow it so starting from the other direction uh, and they also understood that this is a huge opportunity and that the whole market is changing that it's not just something for you know small companies or like a temporary thing but that this is the future of office that the office space is becoming uh, more flexible more branded uh, more attuned to the needs and aspirations and goals of the individuals within it uh, partly because of the war for talent partly because people generally are becoming more spoiled and more expecting to get everything on demand and you know when they go to the office they're starting to expect things to work at least as well as they do when you're home you know that you click a button and something happens or someone comes in and delivers something uh so th that's what they did right uh what they did wrong ooh, <laughs> we can it's like i can write a whole book about that but <laughs> i think uh one is that they grew too quickly uh i think they were trying to prove something, but I think the the business itself could have been, you know, even to build a $5 billion company or $8 billion company, which is more or less what they are now, is still incredible. But they set the expectations so high and they overspent on so many things and overextended themselves that in the end, they, they kind of succeeded because they did change the office market forever. Mm -hmm. And they did create a multi-billion dollar company, but it, it was a disappointment for everyone involved. And, you know, the investors are angry, the public is angry. I'm not sure why a lot of the employees that had stock options are empty so i mean yeah. that was a mistake uh, part of that mistake is driven by another mistake which is the type of funding that they relied on which is venture capital uh, and i think they could have taken less venture capital and used a little more of traditional real estate financing uh, whether it is to buy buildings or even to sign leases but to rely on investors that have a little more patience and uh and are not necessarily looking, you know, for a company to double in size every year or year and a half and to continue to grow its valuation, uh, but to focus more on, you know, on, on revenue and, and net income. Uh, and, uh, and the last thing I think that they could have done better is to focus. I think, to, I mean, the office market is huge. It's one of the largest market mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, but it wasn't enough for them. So they kept trying to go into residential and open a school and, you know, show that they're more of a technology company that they are and did a lot of things that I think were were unnecessary, uh, whether it is, you know, because of, of ego or, again, because of the investors themselves pushing them to pretend to be more of something that they aren't. Uh, but I think if they would have been more focused, a little more discerning in the way they, they grew, 
things would have ended up better. But the good news is that it's not over yet. So I mean, they still have a chance to uh, to turn it around and correct. Like the opportunity is still there. They are still a phenomenal company, uh, and still the biggest one of its kind. So I'm I'm rooting for them. Like I think it's important for the industry that they will succeed. Yeah, and and it's interesting that on the heels of that, again talking about like finding ways to utilize space. You had mentioned in the book that you know hotels are kind of starting to to do the same. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily we work in in full, but to have yeah. office spaces and and places where people can co work yeah. while they're at a hotel in a city that they need to be in at that time. That that stuff just starts to make so much more sense now, and it's on the heels of everything that we work built. Yeah, and at, the, and at the same time, office buildings are starting to be like hotels. So you have, I mean, less a WeWork, but some, let's say, an operator like Convene, which is somewhat of a WeWork competitor, but a little more upscale. So, you know, they have on-site chefs and, you know, they make their own food and they make meals for everyone in the building if people want it. And they have this kind of a more upscale hospitality thing. And, you know, in some of the office buildings today, you have these nap rooms or even, you know, showers and uh, childcare, and sometimes healthcare, and maybe a little retail. So it's it's becoming really difficult to uh, like the old definitions of uses uh, are not not so valid or not so useful anymore. And some of them, you know, they base it on having these additional amenities as well yep. as part of the office space. Then the other end of the spectrum, and I I have to mention this because you mentioned it yeah. in the book, and it was probably the most bizarre thing I think I read in there was that uh-huh. Wii Park model yeah you want to explain that because that that blew my mind but it's you know again on the other end of the spectrum where you need a cheap place to work yeah there's an option so that was i mean i have to say this was more of a performance art i think than a real business yeah Uh, but it was an interesting experiment in san francisco a guy named victor pontes was actually a ceo of a scooter you know startup so one of those micro mobility startup Mm -hmm. he he figured out i mean rent in san francisco is so expensive but actually, all the streets are the streets are given to cars for free. You know, cars can just drive around the streets on public land. Yeah. And uh, even parking is either free or it's very, very cheap. You know, it's two and a half bucks an hour or something in, in San Francisco and New York. So he said, what if instead of renting an office, I'll just keep feeding the meter. Then I get this like nice little square area, which is bigger than a private office in a WeWork, let's say. Yeah. And I'll just put my desk there <laughs> or put a bunch of desks and, you know, I'll... <laughs> I'll rent it out to people, <laughs> you know, I'll just keep feeding the meter and then it's my real estate and it's still cheaper. Uh, so, you know, it worked for a while and it became a movement because people started seeing it on Twitter and then setting up similar ventures in other cities all over the world. Uh, so I was watching it unfold in real time and I loved it. I, I thought yeah. it's so brilliant because it both, I mean, it shows you that people can work anywhere, but also that really it forces you to rethink how we allocate land within cities. And, you know, that we give so much space to cars while there's so much else that we could do with that space. Uh, and we could subsidize it for all sorts of other uses that are maybe much more productive and much more enjoyable for, for the people who live in the city. Yeah, I just, I love that. I love, and again, this is another example where the the influencers via social media right. and things also come into play and help shape, if nothing else, help to help to make a statement about, you know, prices of prices of yeah. real estate in San Francisco but at the same time you know maybe even encouraging what becomes the next startup yeah it, it's actually a great point you know it shows you how strong the the digital channel is where you know 
if you have enough followers on Instagram or Twitter, you can turn a parking spot <laughs> into <Yeah>. a paying <laughs> office <laughs> space. Uh, well, in the past, you, need, you needed to control a great building in order to draw the people. Today, the ability to draw people means that you can decide which building they will actually go to, which is a very big difference from, uh, from you know, 20 years ago or 500 years ago. Yeah. Well, well, Dror, thank you so much for joining me again. Of course. Um, pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this, I, I've read the book. I loved it. Examples like like We Park, but then also some really, um, really interesting examples of ways that retail has been changing um, throughout the book. Tons. What I loved about it most, I think, Dror, is that you know throughout each chapter and each different kind of section and market that you discuss, there were just so many examples of innovation but then also the people that are that are helping shape how yeah. and, and where you know this this whole industry is moving mm-hmm. yeah and to be clear i mean we i guess we discussed mostly retail today but you know there's there's office in the book and apartments and yeah. hotels and storage areas and even a little farmland and a bit of everything and history it, and future and present yeah absolutely i mean all encompassing where where can people uh get the book if they're interested so it's available on Amazon. That's the easiest. It's on Barnes and Noble. Uh, if you're not in the US, again, so Amazon India, UK, Holland. But I guess Amazon is the easiest one. Or you can just go to my website, rethinking.re. So like rethinking real estate. And there's always links to like the, the latest and freshest places with the best prices. Beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dror, for your time today. And uh, we'll talk soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Excellent. And until next time, we will catch you all later. 